Let's, uh, let's get into God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 65, all the way to 72, as we continue our journey through this incredible psalm. We are in the Tet stanza this week. It looks probably like Teth when you look at it in your Bible. The Tet stanza, that's the first Hebrew letter, or excuse me, the first line, first word, excuse me. It begins with that Hebrew letter. And this, we can't see that in English, of course, but um, every single one of those lines begin with that letter Tet. And this stanza is actually even more unique than that. Five out of the eight verses actually begin with the same word in Hebrew, the word Tav, which is good. We don't see that in English. It'll probably come out as we, we go through this, but this song, this psalm is just saturated with the goodness of God. And we get to study that together. So let's read it and let God speak to us here. Verse 65, let's hear the word of the Lord. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what a treasure your word is. So thankful for the chance that we get to study it and have your spirit speak to us every single week. Father, I pray that we would listen. Teach us through your word. Give us discernment so that we might discern what is good. We might especially see your goodness in the face of your Son and glorify your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I I did a project on my personal growth as a Christian. We actually had a teacher who said, you're going to graph out your Christian life. That sounds really strange, right? Let me try to explain. So what our teacher said is we had to graph out our Christian life, and the the x-axis, the the horizontal one, was time. And so it started at zero when we became saved, and it went all the way until that moment. And then the y-axis was our growth, our growth in holiness, our growth in maturity, and growth in sanctification. And the idea was that we would graph out our Christian life on these overheads, and then we'd take them and put them on an overhead projector, I'm just realizing some of you probably don't even know what that is, right? Uh, so ask your parents later if you don't know what that is. But we'd put them on an overhead projector and they would look up in the class and we would, we would reflect on them. We would think about them and just kind of discuss what God did in our lives. Now I expected that almost every graph would look the same. Uh, it would be kind of this diagonal, you know, steady growth. That's similar to what mine looked like. So I figured, oh, that's just going to be what everybody's looks like. And when I got to class, I was shocked to see the difference in everybody's graph. Some were up, some were down, some leveled off. Some of them were like heart rate monitors, just up and down. And it was just incredible to see how differently God worked 
in each of our lives. But even though they were very different, there was one thing in common with almost every single one of them. And this is the message that stuck with me the most. most. And it was the cause of the moments of growth in our life. When someone's graph would kind of suddenly shoot up for no reason, we, we look at it and go, what happened in that year? What happened? Did you take some great class? Did you, did you discover John Calvin and John Owen and start reading? Is that what happened? Or did you have some kind of mountaintop experience? Some experience with the Lord on a mission trip or a camp or a, or a conference? What happened in that year that caused all that growth? And every single time they would look at that and go, oh, that was the roughest year of my life. That was the year that my dad got cancer. My parents were divorced. I had to move away from my childhood home and start over in a brand new town. That was definitely the hardest year of my life, but I grew the most. Actually, I remember there was a married couple in class who did their graphs separately but they put them up on the overhead together and we looked at them and they were all different in many ways, except for one year. One year they both shot up tons of growth and we're like, what happened? What happened in that year? So that's the year we had a miscarriage. It's probably the hardest thing we've ever had to go through, but God taught us more in that one year than any other. I know it sounds crazy, but I wouldn't trade that one year of suffering for anything. Isn't it amazing how our God can use some of the most terrible things in our lives to grow us the most, to draw us closer to him, to teach us things that that we will never forget. And it sure is a lot easier to see those things and learn those things looking back on affliction, isn't it? When the suffering is past. But when we're right in the middle of it, when suffering is strongest, what do we usually say? God, what are you doing? How is this for my good? What am I supposed to learn in this? This can't be for the good of of my family. This is not good, Lord. This looks really bad. And that's where we need the words of David in this stanza. In Psalm 119, they're so helpful because David shows us what God does through suffering. He teaches us how God works in and among suffering in our lives. And namely, it's this. God reveals his goodness to his people through affliction. I want you to get that more than anything else and take that home. God reveals his goodness to us, to his people, to his children, through affliction, through suffering, the last place we would expect to find it. That's how God works. That's what he does. Now, how specifically does he do that? Well, this psalm teaches us that as well. God uses affliction to correct us and to teach us. So that's what we're talking about this morning. God revealing his goodness to his people through affliction. And that affliction both corrects us and teaches us. So let's look into the psalm uh, as God reveals his goodness to his people through affliction. Now first, I hope you notice, the last few weeks have all been about affliction. And I will continue on. There's a lot in this psalm about struggling and affliction. And this stanza is no different. Look at verse 67. Verse 67, David says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Then down in verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, 
So David is still talking about suffering, still talking about afflictions here, but you'll notice a sudden shift. The last few stanzas, he's asking for help in his afflictions, asking for rescue, that God would come through and keep his promises. This, is, this stanza is different. David is looking back on those afflictions as God has answered his prayers. Rescue has come. Now he's rejoicing and reflecting on God's work so that he can teach us. He can teach us how God used those afflictions in his life and now in our life as well. That's why verse 65, the whole stanza, starts with this incredible declaration. Look at verse 65 of me. You have dealt well, or literally good you have done, with your servant, O Lord. David starts off by declaring God's goodness in his works, in his ways, in David's life. God worked well through affliction for his good in affliction. But he takes it a whole step further. Look at verse 68. 68 may be one of the most famous verses in this entire psalm. As David declares, God, you are good and do good. What a profound statement about our God. I hope you can see what David's getting at. It's not just that God does good stuff. He doesn't just get a few things right. He's not like us, who might get some things right, but then we fail miserably right afterwards. God's not someone who just gets a lot of good things right. No, God is good in and of himself. He's essentially good. He's the fountain of goodness, the source of goodness. He can't do anything but good. That's who God is. And so his good works are not just things that just happened. They are pouring out of his good character because God is good. But what does David mean exactly when he says good? We need to stop there because the word good is just, gosh, it's, it's abused in our culture. Right? It's, it's overused and abused. It's used for all kinds of things. I was just thinking, we, we say pizza's good, sleep's good, church can be good, and all kinds of things can be good, right? Well, is that what David means when he says God is good? Well, generally when we say good, we mean it's just not bad. It's not bad. Is that what David's saying? God's not bad? Yes and no. No, he's saying way more more than that. But in one sense, he's saying, yes, God has nothing bad in him. Right? God is morally good. He is not bad. He's not corrupted by sin or evil or the fall as we are. He's righteous and perfect and holy, as Mikey read earlier. That's part of his goodness, his moral goodness. But there's also a positive side to that. It's not just that he doesn't have bad stuff. There's a a positive beauty to it, where if we see God in all of his glory and we see what he does, we don't think, it can get better. You know, if we just tweak one or two things, I can see how it can improve. No, if we see God in all of his glory, the right response is like Job, just to go, cover your mouth. The right response is to glorify God, to praise God, to respond with applause or a standing ovation, to say, that's as good as it gets. There is no better than that. Because everything God is and everything God does is worthy of approval. That's what God's goodness is. He is everything that we should ever want. 
And he is nothing that we should ever hate. God is good. And he's eternally good. He doesn't change at all. Still the same good God as he was in creation. Now, how do we know that's what David's talking about here when he uses the word good to describe God? Well, look at verse 65 one more time. Where does David get his definition for good? You have dealt well or good with your servant, O Lord. How? According to your word. David says your goodness is defined by your word. That's where I see your goodness. As you fulfill your covenant promises, as you act according to your word, your goodness showed up in my life in affliction, just like it showed up to all the saints throughout salvation history in your word. Isn't this so true? These pages are just saturated with God's goodness, especially in affliction. There's so many examples of this throughout Scripture, it's hard to even narrow them down. What if we look at Joseph or Jacob in the Old Testament at the end of, um, the end of Genesis? Joseph sold into slavery by his scoundrel brothers through terrible affliction and terrible suffering. He, he is tormented for years, but then God sovereignly rises him to the second place in command in Egypt by an incredible act of God's providence. And then a famine hits the land, and Jacob is forced to send his whole family, except for Benjamin, to go get food. Then his family comes back, except for Simeon. And from Jacob's perspective, all he knows is that this new Pharaoh's given him a hard time. And the word is, they're not getting any food unless Jacob comes himself and he brings Benjamin. And Jacob thinks, what in the world? I've already lost Joseph. He's dead. Who knows what's going to happen to Simeon? Now Benjamin, my favorite son? Lord, you promised me that we would be a great nation. That we would be a blessing to this world. I don't see how this is going to be good for us. How could this be a blessing? But what Jacob doesn't doesn't know is that Joseph is alive. Simeon was with Joseph. And God was using Joseph to save his whole family to bring them to Egypt, to make them into a great nation. And at the end of his life, Joseph can look back on all of the affliction, all of the horrible things and say what? You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Because God is good and does good. He reveals his goodness in affliction. Oh, there's story after story in Scripture. I think of Naomi and the book of Ruth, or even David himself. How many times has God worked goodness from David's own afflictions? We don't even know which particular time he's talking about here because it happens so often. But why not fast forward to the greatest display of God's goodness through affliction, which is in Jesus Christ, his own son, who was sent to live the perfect life for us to obey the law in our place and die in the place of sinners. The wrath of God was poured out on an innocent man. What looked like the worst tragedy in all of history, the greatest act of evil and the greatest act of justice, injustice, excuse me, brought about the greatest good. God brought goodness through that affliction as he kept every single one of his covenant promises to his people. And as Jesus rose, conquering sin and death and Satan and his goodness, God's grace was given to those that trust him by faith. 
As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the affliction that God brought. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God revealed his goodness to his people in the afflictions of Jesus Christ. And now if we trust him by faith, now if we know Christ, if we are in Christ, then we are promised, as Paul says in Romans 8, 28, and we know, and we know for those who love God, all things, not just some things, not just most things, all things work for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, do you know that if you are in Christ, all the affliction that you deserve because of your sin, all the suffering, the wrath of God that you deserve was laid on him so that all the goodness of God can come to you. And now even in Christ, any affliction that happens in our life is for our good. God can do you no wrong because of Jesus. That is incredible news. It's incredible news. Yet when trials come, when the test results come back as malignant, we get that phone call that a family member has died. What do we do? God's not in this. God's not at work. He's, he's not showing me his goodness. I'm the exception to this rule. God's not at work for my good. This affliction is not going to be for my good. It's going to end really poorly. That's when we desperately need to remember the words of David that God is good and does good. And we see his goodness revealed in affliction. And not only do we see God's goodness revealed in affliction, we also see how specifically he reveals his goodness in affliction. And that's our second point, is God actually uses affliction to correct us. He uses affliction to correct us. Look at verse 67 with me. David says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. Do you notice there's kind of a before and an after, right? There's a before and after. There's a course correction that happened in David's life by God's grace. And what was that? What happened before? Well, look at the description. Look at the condition that David says. Before I was afflicted. In other words, I had no, no troubles. I had no affliction. I had no struggles in my life. Things were going great. I was living the blessed life, the life of ease. I was having my best life now. It's what it appeared to be on the outside, but what did it lead to for David? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Not that I was shaking my fists in God's face, rebelling against him in this kind of high-handed way that Leviticus talks about. Not that I was running away from God as fast as I could and as far as I could like Jonah. No, before I was afflicted, I was drifting, drifting, drifting. I was going astray from God and his ways. See, what happened to David is the time of comfort became the time of carelessness. The, the time of foolishness. And don't we see this happen all over the Scriptures? We see this happen in David. We see this in Solomon countless of times. The whole book of Judges is about that. 
This in the cycle of when God blesses his people, they turn and they forget God. Please don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with blessing. The first stanza is all about the blessed life, isn't it? And God does bless his people. Those are gifts from God. And we will eternally enjoy the gifts of God, the blessing of God. But while we're here in this fallen world with sinful fallen hearts at war with Satan in the flesh, we are often tempted to take God's blessings and it lure us into laziness and foolishness like a soldier who lets down his guard and lets the enemies right into the camp. And before we know it, we're overrun. That we've wandered away from God. We've been led astray. Oh, think of Israel. They finally get to the promised land, right? After God frees them from Egypt, after years of of wandering in the desert, all these horrible things happen, they finally get to the place of blessing. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land of peace and comfort and rest. And what happens within the first few years? Their prosperity leads them to forget God. They start loving the things of this world. They start to believe that Canaan was their inheritance and not the God who gave it to them. In their prosperity, they became deaf and unresponsive to God and His words. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't believe for one second that this can't happen to you. It can't happen to us. Because in times of blessing, in times of comfort, we can just as easily be lured to sleep and begin the spiritual laziness. We can neglect the means of grace, neglect gathering together to hear God's Word preached, to sing God's Word, to pray God's Word, to encourage one another and help one another. We can neglect to do the things that God calls us to because we think, you know what? I'm doing fine. I'm okay. There's no war going on. I don't have any big struggles right now. Now is the time to relax, to play, to enjoy this world. We let down our guard and slowly but surely we drift away. We see it happen over and over and over again. We've seen it happen because of COVID, sadly. Drifting, drifting. Well, what woke David up? Did you notice that in verse 67? What woke David up from going astray before it was too late? Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, now what? Now that I've been afflicted, now that suffering has come, I keep your word. So what was the solution to going astray? It was affliction. God used the rod of correction in David's life to get his attention like nothing else could. By God's grace, he afflicted David and disciplined him to lead him back to himself. But he didn't just correct David's ways. He didn't just correct his life. He also went to work on his heart. We see the fruit of that in verse 69. Look at verse 69 with me. These are the people who are afflicting David. The insolent, the proud, the arrogant, what do they do? They smear me with lies. They cover me with slander and falsehood. They put up this facade of lies that you can't even see through. No one can even tell who I really am because they've lied so much about me. But look at David. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Isn't that beautiful? David says they were bent on revenge. 
They were bent on dishonor, on slander. But my heart, God, by your grace, by your grace and affliction, my heart is fixed on your words, your precepts. Look at verse 70. Their heart, those proud and insolent, their heart is unfeeling like fat. Some translations say gross with fat or covered with fat. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, their hearts are fat with fat. It's disgusting, right? What does that even mean? Does that mean they need some kind of medication or something? What, what's going on? This is an idiom here, and it's actually a picture of, of what's happened to their hearts. That their hearts have grown evil and proud and rebellious and lazy. Their hearts are unresponsive to God's words and His ways. They can't see God's goodness. They're blind to it because of their, their fat hearts. They become spiritually senseless. Perhaps this is exactly where David was headed when he was going astray. That his hearts would have turned out just like this. But now, what does it say? Verse 70. But now, I delight in your word. Now I'm responsive to your word. Now I listen to your word. Now I love your word. Lord, I delight in your, Lord, in your word. I would have been just as proud and as arrogant as them, but you corrected me. You brought me back to yourself through affliction. And now I keep your ways in my heart and in my life. Now I'm sure some of you are probably thinking, you know what, I get it. I'm glad that God corrects us. That's helpful. But isn't there a better way? Right? Affliction, really? I mean, there's got to be a less painful way for God to get our attention. Right? Easier way. It seems like a good God would come up with something a little bit easier to change us, to correct us, right? Something that seems a little bit better than affliction. Now, for one thing, if you're a parent, you know that pain is corrective. <laughs> Effectively so, right? God designed us for some reason with some kind of connection between our behind and our brain. And sometimes you could tell your kids over and over and over again, and the only thing that seems to get their attention is discipline, is correction. It's the best possible way to get our attention sometimes. And don't think that we aren't the same way. We just like our kids, can't we? Pain and suffering gets our attention and wakes us up to what's really going on in our life a whole lot better than almost anything else. And God is a way better parent than us. He's a good God and he's a good father. And that's why Hebrews 12 talks about discipline this way. Hasn't been too long since we've been in Hebrews, so hopefully you remember this. Let me read these few verses. Hebrews 12, verse 9. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we've respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good. And what good is that? That we might share in his holiness. There's a lot more important things in your comfort than our ease, namely our holiness. That's why for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline, affliction is painful in the moment. God doesn't promise escape from it. He promises it'll be worth it. 
It'll be part of his good work in our lives to make us holy. Now you need to stop and think for a second because affliction is not always corrective. I don't want you to think as soon as something bad happens, as soon as suffering comes, that I need to go on a witch hunt and try to figure out what sin caused this. Right? Sometimes we freak out and like, what do I do? I need to repent. What do I do? That's what we can be like. Now, I do think a lot of times affliction is a lot more corrective than we want to admit. And so when suffering and affliction comes, we do need to be quick to repentance. But God reveals his goodness in affliction by giving us affliction that corrects us, but also affliction that teaches us. And that's what the next part of this, this verse is all about. The next part of this stanza. In fact, we've already seen it, haven't we? What's the one lesson that we can already say that David's learned really well? God is good and does good. He learned that because of affliction. Looking back on his affliction, that's the main lesson of this whole stanza. But here's the goodness of God for you. He didn't just learn about God's nature and God's way, about God's character and about the way he works. David learned to discern what is good. He learned to see it. And that's what we see in verse 66. Look, he asked for God to do this in him. Verse 66, teach me. Man, how many times have we asked, we've seen that prayer in the psalm? Teach me, teach me, teach me your ways, teach me your precepts, teach me your word, right? But this one's different. Look what he says. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Oh, this is such a wonderful prayer. We need, desperately, we need both of these, don't we? We lack knowledge and discernment, both, all the time. Have you ever made a foolish decision? Have you ever had good intentions and still done something stupid? Because you lacked the knowledge and you thought, oh, if I'd only known that, I would have acted totally different, right? I would have never done that. I would have never said that. If only I had the knowledge. We lack the knowledge. God doesn't lack any knowledge. And so we ask him to teach us. But look, even if we had the knowledge, even if we knew everything, if we had zero discernment, if we had zero judgment, or even like this, this really literally says taste here, taste, this judgment, this wisdom that we're talking about. If I know God's word by, my, by heart, in my heart, if I believe God's word, as David says there, but I still have discernment or still miss discernment, I'm going to miss God's goodness when it's right in front of my face. I won't be able to see it. I'll go astray. God's goodness is all around us. That's why I said affliction reveals it. It's already there. It's just veiled to us in this fallen world. And God's afflict, God brings affliction to unveil that. And we need to ask for discernment to see it. And amazingly, God gives David this discernment. The last two verses in this section, they both start the exact same way. You can't see it in the, um, in the English there, but they literally start with good to me, good to me. David learned to discern what is good. And what is that? Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. I hope the shock of that hasn't lost its value. Good for me that I was afflicted? Could you say cancer was good for you? 
death in the family was good for you? Good for me that I was afflicted. Now look, I'm not saying affliction is good in and of itself. There would be no affliction. There would be no suffering if we did not live in a fallen world. But as Romans 8.28 says, God works together for good. He works through affliction. It's the instrument in God's hands to teach us. And God turns them for good. And so what's David saying here? As hard as affliction was, it's worth it. Why? Look at the end of the verse. That I might learn your statutes. David says, as hard as it was, I wouldn't trade it for the world because I learned things about God and about myself and about how God works that I might have never otherwise learned. He can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17, those afflictions were light and momentary because they were preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But we don't minimize our afflictions and say, ah, just get over it. They're still heavy. They're still horrible. But the promise is they don't compare to the goodness that God brings forth from them. And David is given grace to see that, to learn that, that even his afflictions are good in the hands of God. Look at verse 72. The other thing he's able to discern. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Literally, it says, good to me is the law of your mouth. Better than countless gold and silver. Maybe David lost money. Maybe financial stability was one of the things he was afflicted with. But what has he learned from that loss? What has he learned from all of his afflictions? That I would take the word of God over any treasure in the world. I wouldn't trade this for anything. Why? Because it's here that I see the goodness of God. It's here that God's Spirit corrects me in my affliction. And here that God's Spirit teaches me in my affliction. And it's here that God points forward to the seed of the woman who would come to fix my affliction forever. The one who would be afflicted for me. The man of sorrows to take all my guilt and my shame and the wrath of God and to kill them with his own death. So that the goodness of God, the righteousness of God could come to me, a sinner as well. God's word does that for us. Shows us that. Reveals us. Reveals that to us. That's why it's a treasure beyond any treasure. We discern what is good because God shows us what is good in his words. Now I need to stop because I know some of you are probably thinking, well, you know what? Good for David. Good for David. I'm happy that David can see this. And you know what? I'll bet David is looking back on his whole life, years from his affliction, and he's able to say these things. But not me. I'm in the middle of the mess right now. I struggle every day to see God's goodness. All I see is pain. I don't know what I'm supposed to learn. I pray for discernment and it hasn't come. I pray for God's word to teach me, but I feel like it's drier than ever. I have a really hard time seeing that God is good and does good in my life right now. How do I get here? Well, one way is you wait. Wait. God often reveals his goodness 
over a long period of time. But you know what? God is not just good. His timing is good. And His timing is perfect. And God may bless you one day to see what He brought, good things He brought out of your affliction, but He may not. There are things in my life that I still don't know what God was doing. I know He was doing some good, but I may have to wait till heaven to figure out what that is. And so we need to be patient, and we wait. But while we wait... While we wait for God to show His goodness in our own life, look outside of yourself. Because God's goodness is all around us. It's all around us in His Word. It's all around us in creation. It's all around us in the lives of other people that are sitting right next to you. Look for God's goodness in His saints, in His church. That's where He displays His good work. Find encouragement in the lives of saints. Some saints who've had to wait their whole life to figure out how God would use their afflictions. Like this man. Let me tell you this story for one second. It was September 19th, 1933. A new school year had begun in England. A seven-year-old boy had just started to attend the national school in the English Cathedral of Gloucester. He was shy and uncertain of himself and his new surroundings, and he was already being bullied. Another boy chased him out of the school grounds and onto the busy London road. A passing bread van could not avoid hitting him. He was thrown to the ground with a major head injury. The young man was taken to the Glosser Royal Infirmary and rushed into an operating room. He was discovered to have a depressed compound fracture in the frontal bone of the right side of his forehead. With an injury to the frontal lobe of his brain, it was potentially very serious, even fatal. But he survived the injury. Fast forward four years. Every schoolboy of the period longed for the day when he would receive a bicycle of his own. Usually around the age of 11, at the point when the schoolboy was to enter senior school, Parents would make their sons coming of age by giving him a bicycle as a birthday present. The boy dropped heavy hints that he expected to receive a bicycle like all his friends. However, his parents knew they could not yet allow their son to have a bicycle. If he were to have any kind of accident, the earlier injury could lead to something much more serious and potentially fatal. But what could they give their son instead? On the morning of his 11th birthday in 1937, the boy wandered downstairs from his bedroom to see what present awaited him. He expected to find a bicycle. Instead, he found an old Oliver typewriter, which seemed to weigh to him half a ton. It was not what he asked for. Nevertheless, it proved to be what he needed. Surprise gave way to delight as he realized what he could do with this unexpected gift. It was not more than a minute before he had put paper into the machine and started to type. It proved to be his best present and most treasured possession of his entire life. You know that boy never stopped writing. His name is J.I. Packer. If you've ever seen a picture of J.I. Packer, you might have noticed there's a big dent in his forehead. He suffered the trauma from that childhood injury his whole life. Many would say that the writings that J.I. Packard did on that typewriter, and by the way, he used the same typewriter his whole life. The writings he did on that 
typewriter had a profound impact on the church. His book, Knowing God, had a massive impact on my life in college, and I'm sure many of you as well. It took him his whole life to see how God would use that affliction for good. But he didn't just use it for his good, even our good. Listen to what J.I. Packer says about Romans 8. Paul is telling us that there is no ultimate loss or irreparable impoverishment to be feared. If God denies us something, it is only in order to make room for one or other things that he has in mind. The meaning of he will give us all things can be put like this. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? Because God is good and does good. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful that you display your sovereign goodness all around us. We're so thankful that your word teaches us the goodness around us when we would never see it on our own. We pray, Father, that your word would continue to teach us and correct us so that we might see how you are good to all your servants. And Father, when we doubt it, when we doubt your goodness, help us run to the cross of Christ, the place where we see the goodness of God on display better than any other place. And we know, Father, since you did not spare your own son from us, how will you not in, also, in, in him give us also all things? Help us to trust you. Help us to praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.